0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Today's scripture reading is, is a little bit long. Um, it's taken from two chapters in 1 Samuel. The first passage is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1-10. to 10. It reads, And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, not let, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken." but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, And inherit a seat of honour, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on him he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, Against against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And the next passage is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with all and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, Peacefully, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliah and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees... There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he was sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up, And went to Rama. These are the true words of the living God.
1: Faith. Thank you, Rachel. Good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely to see you today. Welcome to RHC. We are beginning uh, a new series in First Samuel, and today we're doing something that we have never done before, which is to try and preach one sermon on the whole book. So that technically is going to be an exposition of the whole book of First Samuel. And uh, this is so that we hopefully, by the end of this, we'll understand what the book's about and see the big picture of the book. And then from next Sunday, we'll dive into chapter one, verse one. So that's our plan for today. And if you feel like this could be a very long sermon, uh, or I need a lot of help, then I would invite you to close your eyes and pray with me for all of our sakes. Father, we ask that you would be with us this afternoon as we look at your word. May you help me. But more importantly, may you help all of us, myself included, to have soft hearts to hear what it is that you are saying to us today as your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me begin by asking this afternoon, how important is good leadership to you? For example, does it matter which political party is voted in to govern Singapore in the next general election? Does it matter what your boss is like at work? Does it make a difference? Friends, these things do matter because we all know that our well-being is deeply tied to what our leaders are like, whether those are leaders who have authority over us or whether they're just leaders that we, whose example we follow. We think about someone like Lee Kuan Yew and his influence upon Singapore, mostly for good and the flourishing we have in this nation as a result of much of his leadership, there are reasons why people are not queuing up friends to emigrate into North Korea. They have a different kind of leadership and it affects the flourishing of those people. Or maybe we think about a leader like Queen Elizabeth who didn't have much absolute power over those in the nation because of how that because of how England is set up, but yet was a powerful figure, a leader who led her nation with grace and dignity and shaped so much of that nation over decades. A brilliant leader. First Samuel begins at a time where God's people had no leadership. It, uh, the book of Judges says that there was no king in Israel, and so everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and it was chaotic. Now, the big idea of 1 Samuel is that God's people flourish by being under God's rule, under God's king. And 1 Samuel is going to show us that this idea of being under God's rule is not something that comes naturally to us. We often are inclined to look for the wrong kind of leaders. But God, in His grace, has better rulers and leaders for us. But we are inclined to miss it because there's an upside down quality to the nature of God's kingdom and the kind of leaders that He puts over us. It challenges us how we think. For example, the book of uh, 1 Samuel begins with God reestablishing His rule through a barren woman. Named Hannah. This is very upside down. Hannah responds in chapter 2 by celebrating God's reversals, God's up, the upside down nature of those that God chooses and works through. And Hannah begins to speak in her prayer a prophetic uh, word about God's coming kingdom. In chapter 2, verse 4. 7 and 10, she says, The bows of the mighty are broken. There's an upside down nature to God's kingdom. But the feeble, the humble, they bind on strength. Or look at verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And then she shows us that her whole uh, prayer of thanksgiving is actually a prophetic declaration bigger than just her own childbearing, but will have something to do with the kings and the king that God will bring. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God's spirit has filled Hannah and she is proclaiming something about God's kingdom. And many commentators point out how this prayer of Hannah, which we'll see in more detail next Sunday, is actually like a table of contents for the entire book of 1 Samuel. Friends, through all of this, through this book, God is going to show us the better king that we are all looking for, though maybe some of us struggle to recognize. The question, though, is do we want it? What kind of a king would we choose if we could choose our own king? This book we're going to see is going to challenge each of our own hearts before God. And first Samuel is going to do that through narrative, through story, telling us a true story of God's people hundred, thousands of years ago. And this book is filled with many humorous and fascinating elements to it. It tells famous stories that many of us may know well, like David and Goliath. It covers phrases that have crept into the English language, like God looks at the heart. This book deals with things like mediums and the occult. It deals with tumors It tells us about a massacre of priests and Saul nearly being assassinated while on the toilet twice. So today we're going to dive in and look at an overview of the whole book. And 1 Samuel really plots the course of the lives of three people, Samuel, Saul, and David. And those three people roughly correspond to our three uh, points of our sermon today. Firstly, we're going to see rejecting God as king Secondly, what happens when you reject God as king, and thirdly, embracing God through his king. So, let's dive in. We saw, friends, how God has begun to restore his rule in upside-down ways through a barren woman, someone who seemed to have no power in in those days. Hannah cries out to God, we'll see this next week, and her child, Samuel, that she delivers, now gives birth to, will become a prophet whose task it is to restore God's word. And so if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, it tells us what a dire situation Israel was in. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. What does this mean? These are God's people, and yet they do not hear God's word. God's word is not being spoken. The word of the Lord is rare. God's rule is not being seen or revered through his word. And so 1 Samuel chapter 3, a famous passage that many people know where God calls the young boy Samuel and summons him to himself, Samuel, Samuel, and uh, Samuel eventually comes to realize this is God speaking. And God is doing this because he wants to raise up a prophet who will speak his word to his nation. And if you look at how chapter 3 ends, uh, chapter 3 verse 21, the chapter ends, it says, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And 4 verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. God is reestablishing his rule through his word. Now friends, what's crazy here is that even though God here is re- uh, in restoring his rule to his people through his word, God's people reject his rule. And they do this in three main ways. They reject his rule by treating him superstitiously. They reject his rule by desiring to be like the other nations. And they reject his rule by choosing a king based on external criteria. Let's have a look at these. Firstly, they treat him superstitiously. Friends, God's people, just as we're inclined to do, misunderstand the nature of submission to God and God's power. And they treat God's word and his presence in a superstitious kind of a way. What do I mean by that? In chapter 4, God's people are going out to fight uh, in a battle against the Philistines. And as they head out, the Ark of the Covenant gets brought to God's people. The Ark symbolized God's presence. It had artifacts inside that symbolized God's word. And so the, the, the Ark symbolized yeah God's presence and his word. And chapter 4 verse 5 says that as they're preparing for battle, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, that's Israel's camp, all Israel... Gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Do you know what's going on here? As they're about to go into battle, the ark comes into their camp. And they think, we're going to confirm win now. Our God's presence is with us. And they think that just the presence of God's ark and his word is sufficient to enable them to win. And this, friends, is a kind of superstition. They are not a people who have bowed their knee to God's word. They're not obeying him. They're not living underneath his word. And they think just having it there is somehow going to provide some kind of mystical powers. And chapter 4 shows how they lose to to, uh, to the Philistines. And even worse, the ark gets captured. God is showing his people that he will not be related to as some kind of a lucky charm, as some kind of an amulet, as some kind of a rabbit's foot or some kind of superstitious means of, of coercing or manipulating God to get him on your side. They have not bowed their knee to him. Friends, this is a little bit like if you want to you know, find directions to go somewhere, you're driving in your car, and you have your iPhone with Google Maps on it, and you think, well, I'll know how to get there because I have a map in my car. But if you never open the map and you never follow the instructions, you will, com- will absolutely get lost. And many of us treat God this way. We think that just because we have his word, that there's somehow some protection for us. I know of people who've bought a new car and they put a Bible inside the cubbyhole of their car, and this is going to, I don't know, protect them against, you know, getting in an accident or something going wrong. Friends, this is exactly what God's people are doing here. They reject God as king by treating his word as a charm. Friends, we can do this by reading God's word, even faithfully in our devotions, but not Obeying it. Or maybe thinking reading his word is virtuous in and of itself. Secondly, we see God's rule is rejected by desiring to be like the other nations. In chapter 8, we see God's people rejecting God's rule by demanding a king like the other nations. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, point for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. That's the key phrase. They want a king like the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the Lord in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Friends, we don't have a lot of time to look at this this afternoon, but. Israel wanted a physical king that they could see, that they could take pride in, that would make them look like the other nations so they could compare themselves to the other nations who would lead them out into battle. And by wanting a physical king, they were effectively rejecting God who sought to rule and be their king over the nation through his word. Now, in chapter 8, when we get to this in a couple of weeks time, we'll explore it in more detail. It's fairly complicated because God did intend for them to have a king one day. Genesis prophesies this, but yet here the problem is they desire this not because they want to honor God or love him, but because they are trying to copy the nations around them. Friends, maybe for many of us, we may grow tired of us serving a God who we can't see and wish we maybe had something more tangible or physical that we could put our confidence and our trust in. And so we're inclined to turn to other gods, whether that's money or relationships or something else that feels more tangible to us. We can reject God's rule by wanting to be like our neighbors or thinking, oh, this is what everyone else does. We may think the best life now consists in us getting things that our colleagues or friends may want. Maybe you think getting a job at Google is gonna make you happy. Solve all of your problems. Who knows? I'm sure there's nothing wrong with working at Google. But I don't think everyone who works there magically finds that their life is incredible and all their problems disappear. Friends, Israel persists in wanting to look like the other nations. And terrifyingly, as we'll see in a moment, God answers them in the scariest way by giving them what they want. And finally, God's rule is rejected by choosing a king based on external criteria. Look in chapter 9 verse 1. Eventually they ask so much for a king that God says, okay. And chapter 9 verse 1 shows us the king that they will get. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorah, son of Appiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. So he's wealthy. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Friends, Saul here, looks, is the best of the best. He's of wealthy family. He's handsome. He's tall. In fact, chapter 10, verse 24, further elaborates. Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Can you see the kind of uh, energy here? These people desire a king like the nations. And God says, if you want that, I'll give you the best of the best. I'll give you exactly what you want. Let's find someone who, on the outside, looks so impressive. Tall, handsome, has all the external qualities of a king. But friends... They got Israel's bachelor. I mean, he won bachelor competition on TV. He won Israel Idol. They got the best. But this so-called perfect king, friends, is a royal disaster. And in fulfillment of Hannah's prayer, the bows of the mighty are broken. The king who looks so amazing. God truly brings low and he exalts as per Hannah's prayer. Friends, Saul's life is a disaster. And the scary thing here, friends, is that sometimes God brings us to our senses. Sometimes God judges us by doing what? By looking at our desires and telling us, okay, Lord, you have. You can have what you want. You've asked for it. You've desired it, you can have it. Letting our own folly play out. This, friends, is sometimes the only way that we learn. So what happens when we reject God as our king? And we see this now with Saul. Friends, Saul here is illustrative of what happens when you reject God as your king in two ways. Firstly, Saul himself, just as a person, illustrates the decline of someone who worships other gods, who turns away from God. His own demise, as we'll see, is tragic. But secondly, we must recognize in Samuel, Saul's functioning as the king of the nation. And therefore, when the king rejects the ultimate king, God, those under his rule do not flourish. It affects the whole nation together. Now, friends, Saul is a problem from right early on. He's insecure. He wants to look good. Saul is self-reliant and he arrogantly makes unlawful sacrifices. He's waiting for Samuel to come. Samuel delays and takes his time. So Saul thinks, well, I'm the king. I can just make the sacrifice. And Saul does so. But this, friends, is against God's word. He is so arrogant that he's taking a role for himself before God that he's not allowed to take. And then Friends, uh, and then we see that he blatantly disobeys God's word when he goes to battle against the Amalekites. And the word of the Lord comes to Saul through Samuel to give him specific instructions. When you go to battle, this is what you're to do. And Saul blatantly disregards it. The The bows of the mighty, friends, who look so good on the outside, but reject God's word on the inside, are indeed broken. And so in fulfillment again of Hannah's, Prophetic song of praise, God rejects Saul as king. Why? Due to his disobedience. Friends, I don't want to belabor the point, but I want you to hear the word of God that he pronounces. Listen to 1 Samuel 13, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Well, listen to chapter 15 where the same idea is repeated. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Friends, the decline of Saul in the book of 1 Samuel is like watching a car crash in slow motion. It is tragic and heartbreaking. It is a warning to every one of us. There are three elements. Firstly, rejecting God as king leads to distance from God. It leads to delusional distraction finally leads to death. Let's see how it leads to distance from God. Friends, remember God said that rejecting his word is rejecting God himself. How does this play out? Friends, here we see Saul slowly through the rest of one Samuel getting further and further away from God. Chapter 16, verse 14, it says, the spirit of God left him and a harmful spirit came. Saul finds himself plagued. In chapter 18 verse 12, more explicitly it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. As Saul turns away from God and disobeys God's word, he finds himself more and more alienated and separated from God. Saul, we see, as the the book carries on, seeks to pray every now and again and ask God for help, but not because he's seeking God with his whole heart. He simply needs help in difficult moments, and he's trying to get Uh, he's trying to find escape from difficult situations in which he's in, and he finds God does not respond to him. This is a man who's turned away from God and now finds himself alienated in greater and greater ways. And friends, as we see the slow demise of Saul over the following chapters, one by one by one by one, we get to an all-time low in chapter 28, where Saul, afraid, about to go into battle, praise cannot reach God, and in his fear and in his desperation, he does one of the most wicked things he can do, which is turn to a medium, part of the occult, to try and get some kind of an answer from the spirit world, some kind of advantage. Friends, the passage tells us in chapter 28, there were no mediums in the land because Saul had banished them. It was against God's law. Every Israelite knew you could not do anything like this. And so Saul sends his men to try and find someone undercover who's still practicing under the law. And Saul covers himself, puts on a disguise to go and seek some kind of occultic guidance. Friends, this is such a wicked thing for them to do. It's a sign of massive desperation. This is the man who's the king of Israel. Going to a medium. Such desperation. Marked by such fear. I spoke to a man at a wedding yesterday who owned eight temples and used to frequently consult mediums. And he was telling me some of his experiences, getting into trances, the things he would see, the things that he would experience. Some of the fears that kind of kept him in check with all these idols in his house and the demons that he used to see frequently. Friends, this is where Saul has plunged himself. This is where Saul has found himself, friends. Rejecting God, it may start off and seem like such a small thing, but its outworking is terrifying. And friends, can you imagine how tragic this is for the nation—not just for him as a person, but all the people Israel that he represents? Friends, let me ask you this afternoon. I ask it of myself. What wicked powers are you and I inclined to turn to in moments of desperation? Is it the God of money? Is it sexual experiences? Maybe for some here it is the occult or mediums. Rejecting God as king leads to delusional distraction. Friends, Saul finds himself in these chapters plagued by jealousy as David is anointed and then his star begins to rise. We'll talk more about David in our final point. But in chapter 19, verse 1, as Saul begins to be jealous, it says Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants that they should kill David. Now, friends, I want us to pause and think about this. Here you have Saul, the king of Israel, whose job it is to be a shepherd to God's people, to lead them out into battle against their enemies. And this man is no longer, for the rest of the chapters, pursuing his enemies, going out to battle. Protecting his people. What is Saul giving himself to? He's entirely distracted. What is he distracted with? He's killing David who's been anointed as the next king. Friends, this is a man who has, his whole life is so upside down. He is literally working against God and against his purposes. Before we know it, Saul is chasing David around the countryside using his army to try and put David to death. There's a chilling account in the early 20s of Samuel where Saul discovers that David has taken refuge in a town and one of the priests gave him the showbread. And when this gets reported back to Saul, Saul sends Saul decrees that every one of those priests that Nob get massacred. And the king of Israel, God's king, sees all the priests slaughtered. Friends, some of us would think, I I could never get myself there. This is a man who has failed to obey God's word and slowly, slowly has found his, his life slipping out of control, going from bad to worse to worse. Friends, who here this afternoon is deludedly distracted? God may call you to love your family, but you find yourself pursuing other trivial pursuits. God calls you to do your job faithfully and serve your clients, but you're too worried about inter-office politics so you can get a bigger bonus that you're not actually doing your job as faithfully as you should be. Friends, how does this serve you or the people that you're supposed to serve? And finally, rejecting God as king leads to death. Friends, eventually Saul's long demise ends in his death. Chapter 31, the final chapter of our book. Taking his life in battle. Saul's out in battle. He's injured. Verse 3 of chapter 31 tells us, and then verse 4 shows us what happens. So verse 3, he's injured. Verse 4, then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Saul sees that the end is near. He's terrified of falling into the hands of his enemy. So he says to his armor bearer, you you kill me quickly, lest they torture me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer, saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. What an end. What an end. Externally impressive. Friends, in verse eight to nine, there's a chilling detail that's included in the text. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on a mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head. And they stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines. Friend, Saul ends not just dead, but with his head chopped off. And in the book of 1 Samuel, there are only three things that lose their heads. Firstly, the the foreign god Dagon, who falls on his head and his head falls off before the Ark of the Covenant, showing he, he has no power before God. Secondly, Goliath that enemy of God's people there's a valley there's a battle two sides and two champions from either side must fight the battle in the middle Goliath represents all of God's people's enemies who will enslave them and when he's defeated his head is chopped off and only the third person to lose their head in 1 Samuel is Saul God's king friend Saul dies as an outcast enemy of God. This is what disobedience to God's word ultimately leads to. Friends, the the, the hellish decision that seems so small to disobey God's word blossomed. Those seeds of hell grew and flourished and blossomed in Saul's life. Gave rise to the fruit of death. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into either a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. This is what happened to Saul, friends. This is what sin does to every one of us. Our own desires can lead to death like Saul. And so... God says he will take his kingdom from Saul and he will find another. Chapter 15, verse 28, our next slide says, and Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, Saul. This is when he first disobeyed. And given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Friends, God himself is looking for a better king. A better king for his people. And the way God finds this king again shows his upside down ways. Let's look at our final point today, embracing God through his king. Again, friends, in fulfillment of Hannah's prophetic thanksgiving prayer, that God will raise up someone humble, God does just that. God sends Samuel to go and find another king. And God sends Samuel to a family uh, with many sons, many of them fighting men. And Samuel goes and walks through them one by one. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. And God says, nope, 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 till he gets to all the rest. And he says, do you have another son? And he's like, no, oh, no, wait, there is another son. the shepherd, David, yeah, sorry, always forget about him. And he like, you know, someone go and call David. I mean, David is so insignificant, it seems, he's just been forgotten about. He's the shepherd boy, the youngest. And they go and call David. And yet this, friends, this is the one, the humble, the lowly that God exalts. Why? Because chapter 16, verse 7, it tells us that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Friends, doesn't this remind us of the king that is to come, Jesus, humbly born in a manger, and yet from the lowest of places born to rule? Why? Because God looks for one after his own heart. And so God chooses David, the shepherd, one who's used to caring for sheep. Caring for for, for people. Friends, God here does not care about external appearance or what man regards. This again is in line with what Hannah has said. God sees and exalts the humble. God has sought and found the better king that he is looking for. And the rest of Samuel from chapter 16, again, is the slow fade out of Saul and the rising of David. What exactly does God's king in David look like? Friends, a few things. David learns to trust in God. David learns that his hope, the hope for Israel's victory, is not found in his own military prowess or his brilliance, but is found in God who promises to watch over his people. And so in the famous battle against Goliath, remember, all of Israel is in a sense being held hostage. You got the Philistines in Israel on two sides of the valley. And Israel, is is, there's going to be a battle in the middle. One representative from each side. Whoever wins the battle in the valley, their team is going to win. And literally all of Israel's fate hangs in the balance of whoever will fight in the middle against the champion, Goliath. And David, when all of Israel are too afraid, cannot defeat their enemy, don't know what to do, no one to volunteer, terrified, who will go and fight this giant, Goliath? David, this small boy, says, I will go. And why? Is David confident in himself? No, friends, David is supremely confident in God and God's deliverance. Look at what David says in chapter 17. Then David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down. I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day, all of their enemies, to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and all this assembly may know that the Lord saves. Moah's sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Friends, David is a king who doesn't put confidence in himself and his abilities, but trusts in God and his purposes. But secondly, friends, David trusts God, to raise him up and to fulfill his purposes for his own life rather than taking the kingdom by his own hands. Remember, what we saw earlier was that David was anointed in 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 16, but then Saul only dies in uh, 1 Samuel 31. There's like 15 chapters where they both exist. It's a little bit like in some countries where there's an election held for the new president You see who clearly wins, but the inauguration day is only a couple of months later. And so you've got this like kind of lame duck, president elect waiting to kind of take the role and the old president who's still officially the president, but everyone knows he's on his way out. And that situation exists in Israel for a long time because Saul refuses to recognize what God has said of him and hand over to David. And he now is trying to kill David and, and protect his own reputation. So for a long time, You have this overlapping world. Now, in that context, David has at least two occasions where he himself can put Saul to death. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David finds himself in a cave. He's running from Saul. And Saul's chasing him. And Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. And David is like, oh, this is awkward. He's hiding in the cave. And Saul is clearly very vulnerable And David is so close to Saul that he can literally, I mean, he can kill him. And you can imagine his men saying, God's delivered him into your hands. Just finish him off. I mean, this is like poetic justice. Saul's been trying to kill you for how long? And he's, God's literally handed him to you on, not a platter, on the toilet. I mean, he's right there. And what does David do? David just cuts a corner of his robe to let Saul know. He won't touch him. But amazingly, Amazingly, God is at work in David to help David know he must trust God entirely. In fact, David finds his conscience stricken even by the fact that he's cut Saul's robe. He's grieved about it. David gets another chance two chapters later to show his own growth. He's learning to trust God more and more. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 26, again, David finds himself in a place where Saul's unaware and David's there and David can take His life. And now listen to how David speaks to Saul. Friends, I want you to listen to a king who points to Jesus, one with a tenderness toward even his enemies, those that have pursued him to death. Listen to how David speaks to Saul. David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed." David's saying, God's literally delivered you into my hand, but I would not touch you. I'm entrusting you into God's hand. He says, behold, Saul, as your life was precious this day in my sight. My friends, imagine saying that to your enemy who's marshaled the whole army of the nation to try and kill you. Your life was precious in my sight, David says to Saul. So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Friends, what is the tribulation that David's asking God to deliver him from? Saul. (laughs) And yet even in that moment, he won't even criticize Saul. He just says, just as as I've deemed your life to be precious, may God view my life to be precious, and may he deliver me out of all of my tribulations. Saul who's pursuing him. Friends, can you see the tenderness of David here? The softness of heart, even toward his enemies. Isn't this like Jesus, our Savior? Friends, David is a king who trusts that God's word is true and will come to pass. He need not take matters in his own hands. He's a king who looks to his father, believes his promises, humbles himself before him and executes God's purposes. A man who's faithful in suffering, as David says in what's it Psalm 56 or somewhere like that, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. He entrusts himself to God. Now friends, there's one more detail I must mention. Before we conclude today, in this interim phase of the rejected King Saul still on the throne and the anointed king who's on the run, there's another character we must pay a little bit of attention to, and his name is Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is Saul, the king's son. He's an heir to the throne. And Jonathan becomes best friends with David, the one that God promises will be the future king. In other words, if you were to look at Jonathan's relationship status to his father Saul, it would say it's very complicated. Now, what's Jonathan going to do? If Jonathan bumps off David, then he's going to inherit the throne from Saul. I mean, this Jonathan has much personal wealth, fame coming his way. It's all lined up on a platter for him. Which king is he going to bow to? Is Jonathan going to take what, naturally, by worldly standards, earthly standards, should have been his due? Attain prestige, wealth, fame, glory? Or will Jonathan believe God's word? Will Jonathan recognize who God has anointed as the future king and turn his back on everything that he will naturally inherit? And make a covenant with the true king and bind himself to him at great personal cost to himself. We could go to a few places, but look at chapter 20, verse 14. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. He's saying this to David, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Friends, Jonathan here is looking at his friend, and he believes God's word. He believes his own house, the house of Saul, is going to, which has become an enemy of God's purposes. is going to be wiped off from the face of the earth. And he says, remember me. Remember my family. Remember my house. I'm, I'm making an, um, an alliance with you, David. I see God's purposes in you. I make a covenant with you. Knowing what this would mean, that, that the one day his own family, his, the household that he's from is going to be destroyed. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Friends, here is a man who sees God's words, sees God's future, loves God's king. Even at great cost to himself, makes a covenant and pledges himself allegiance to God's future. My friends, 1 Samuel comes to an end with Saul dead in battle. The scene is set for David to be king. The one with the whole heart for God who comes under his word will be king and will rule the land. Second Samuel will show this in more detail. David's rule becomes the high point in Israel's history. Israel is more land, more fame, wins more battle than any other time before or after. And this is, David's rule is good for the nation by and large. David's last words in 2 Samuel 23, when one rules justly over men ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. What a blessing this kind of a king is. And yet, friends, David is not the ultimate king that we all long for. Tragically, as we know, even David, even David will fail. 2 Samuel shows us this tragically. David is not the perfect king that we long for, a good king, one who points to the ultimate king, but not the perfect king. But 2 Samuel does show God making remarkable promises to David that one day there will be an heir of David, a son, a descendant, whom God will give an everlasting permanent kingdom to, the one to whom David points with a tender and soft heart toward his enemies, one who trusts God fully. He will be the perfect king. And in Luke chapter one, the angel's announcement to Mary, not a barren woman, but a virgin, announces this. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Friends, Jesus is the better king that we are looking for. The one who will step into the valley to deal with the Goliath of our sin and win the battle that we can enjoy. Jesus is the one who will not use his power simply to kill his enemies, but to to rather treat his enemies' lives as precious to himself, you and I, laying down his life for them and imploring us to lay down our swords and recognize his rule and follow him. Jesus, the true and better king who will entrust himself to God even in suffering, And I trust that God will exalt him and suffer even to the point of death, death on a cross. And because of this humility, God will highly exalt this lowly servant and give him the name above every name. The question for us today, friends, is who is our king? As we end this morning, this afternoon, can you put yourself in Jonathan's shoes? Friends, who do you want to make your king today? Is it the current king of this world who reigns now, promising you much glory? Or the promised, anointed, veiled King Jesus, who will one day rule forever and ever? How can you make him your king now? Friends, you can turn to him. This morning, I mentioned a few moments ago a man I met yesterday who owned eight temples, frequently visited mediums. Friends, that man's son is in our church. And 20 years ago, his son was converted. And his son and his brother, who then came to faith, began to pray for their dad. And pray, and pray, and pray. And this morning, that man was in our service. He told me the most remarkable story yesterday of how he came to believe in Jesus. Even in visiting a medium, that man said, I can see Jesus Christ has entered your house. Since when did you become a Christian? Jesus began to pursue him and open his eyes to the power and the glory and the beauty of Jesus. So that one day in the middle of one of these sessions, he began to burst out, King Jesus, I worship you, I love you. Friends, that man was converted 12 years ago. He was filled with such joy and gladness. He kept talking to me. How many years it was since I became in Christ, since I was in Christ, since I began to worship Jesus, since I began to love Him, since He delivered me. Friends, maybe you're here today and you have made terrible life decisions. Maybe you have been like Saul and have turned away from God year after year after year. Friends, as the book of Hebrews says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. If you can hear God's voice today, friends, it's not too late for you. There is an opportunity for you to turn back. It is not too late. But would you to turn in humble submission to King Jesus. Let him rebuild your life. Let him fold you into the kingdom of his son, King Jesus, who loves to die for his enemies and redeem them. Friends, he's inviting you and I today into a covenant that he has made with us through his blood. Can we bow before him now and then worship him? Let's close our eyes. Our gracious Father, who is there like you? Who is there like you? There is no God like you in all the universe. And who is like your son, Jesus? One who would take on flesh, born to a virgin, live a humble, ordinary life, serve sinners, die on a Roman cross for our sins, and you truly have exalted your son, Jesus, He truly is the promised king. He was coming back again. And we pray, I ask by your spirit, for myself, for every one of my friends here, you would grant us the eyes of faith to see his rule and to bow every area of our lives to him. We ask this now in his name.
0: Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.